If you have uh, your Bibles uh, handy, go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 953 is where that's at. Uh, About a week ago, I read about uh, one of the most amazing examples of a church rivalry that I've ever come across in my life. And so, just so that you don't think I'm exaggerating this or embellishing it, let me read you a portion of a BBC article that describes this church rivalry. Every Easter Sunday, on the small Greek island of Chios, a fireworks war breaks out between two rival parishes. In a bizarre but long-cherished local tradition, two Orthodox churches in the town of Redondos fire rockets at each other's churches while services are held. The objective is to hit the other church's bell, but many rockets go astray, causing locals to rush frantically for cover. So-called gangs from the two rival parishes spend months preparing more than 25,000 rockets, Reuters News Agency reported. And actually, if you Google this, you can see images of, of, and videos of what this looks like. It's, it's chaos. Um, several days before the event, residents carefully board up both churches' windows and doors, and wrap wire sheeting around the buildings to protect worshipers. On Easter Sunday evening, okay, this is Easter. This is like the day for the Christian church. On Easter Sunday evening, as mass is said in both churches, the rival parish gang set to work, lighting fireworks and aiming them haphazardly at each other's church bells. Amid the melee, priests in both churches attempt to continue with mass, although the deafening sounds of fireworks and cheers as the rockets hit their targets often drown out the proceedings entirely. Residents also admit it is not the most safety-conscious of ceremonies. With several fires in recent years sparked by rockets and even a few deaths. We live as hostages to this tradition, one local lamented. We can't breathe when it takes place. We have to be on standby in case a fire breaks out, because if you're not careful, you can lose your house. So this serves now as the first day of recruitment for the gang at Liberty Church that will now war against other churches in in our region. Um, To my knowledge, none of us, none of you have participated ever in a rivalry that's escalated to this level. If you have, then let me buy you a coffee or a beer and hear the story, because you've lived a far more interesting life uh, than I have. But even if you've not fired rockets at an opposing church's bell during Easter services, this this story, this, this rivalry hits at something that is that is core to the human heart. And that is that you and I as people are prone to division, to rivalry, to factionalism. As are the residents of this island of Chios, as are we, so were the Christians in Corinth. And so one of the issues that Paul first addresses in this letter to the Corinthian church is about divisions in the church. And though there's different cultural nuances, there's different specific evidence of this in our day, there is a lot that we can learn and apply from Paul's words to the church in Corinth. So I'm going to invite you now, listen with open ears to this book that we love. I'm going to read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, 
Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Eternal God, in the reading of your word, in the reading of scripture, may your word be heard, and in the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known, and in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. We pray this in your name. Amen. Following um, Paul's train of thought in uh, this letter, in this chapter of this letter, we're going to look at this text in three different parts. We're going to look at how the church divides itself. We're going to look at how leaders divide the church. And then we'll look at the death of division. How the church divides itself, how leaders divide the church, and the death of division. So first, let's talk about how the church divides itself. And Paul starts this text by pointing to the immaturity of the Corinthian Christians. He calls them infants in Christ. And calling them infants in Christ is not a compliment. Um, Sometimes we consider this picture of salvation, this picture of the gospel, that God adopts us into his family. And that for those of us who believe in the finished work of Jesus, that we get to the right, the privilege of being called children of God. But Paul isn't celebrating that here. He's instead pointing out that these men and women have failed to mature and failed to grow out of spiritual infancy. What's the evidence of their immaturity? Jealousy, 
strife, and factions. And underneath the jealousy, underneath the strife, underneath the factions, the problem is, is that they're thinking in a merely human way. They're applying human wisdom to how they think about the different leaders and the different teachers in the church. Or they're viewing the leaders and teachers in the church the way that you and I might view TED Talk gurus. Many of you are familiar with TED Talks, very bright people sharing new and, and sharp ideas. The Corinthian church is looking to the leaders of their church like TED Talk gurus rather than viewing them as servants of God. Merely human thinking, both in Paul's day as well as in ours, says, follow the cult of celebrity. Who's the best speaker? Who's the smartest? Who's the most capable? Who makes the best impression on you? Who has the best new ideas? Who can gather the most people around them? Isn't that often how we decide who we're going to follow in politics? Isn't that how we often decide who we're going to follow in business and in really so many realms of life? And if that's the way that we're thinking about it, when someone comes along who's more eloquent or smarter or more capable or makes a better impression, we'll shift our allegiances and we'll follow that person instead. In Corinth, what's happening is that the Christians there are picking their favorite leader and they're dividing into factions that oppose one another. Paul's talked about this already in the the first chapter of this letter. We kind of skipped over that piece last week, and now he picks it up again here in chapter 3. Some follow Paul. Others follow Apollos. Others follow Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter. Others just say, I follow Christ, which is a great trump card, right? It's a great trump card. These uh, would be like in Corinth, the non-denominational folks that are all about being non-denominational. And haven't quite figured out yet that non-denominational is really just another denomination. But as he's been doing throughout the first two chapters of the letter, Paul continues to call these men and women to trade human wisdom for the wisdom of God. In the wisdom of God, how should the church view its leaders? In verses 5 through 9, Paul uses this agricultural metaphor to teach us some things about that. And here's what we learn. We learn that God is the owner of the field. Right? The people of God, the church of God, belongs to no one but him. We learn that God solely is responsible for the growth. We learn that leaders in the church are servants, and they labor differently. Some plant, some water, but in their diversity of labor, they really have a united purpose. Namely, they are God's varied means of bringing growth to his people. So how does the church divide itself? It divides itself by confusing the means of growth and the source of growth. The church in Corinth is dividing over the means of growth rather than looking to the source. And Paul is saying here, why why would you ever say that you're of Paul? Or why would you ever say that you're of Apollos? If you only knew what Paul and Apollos really were, really are, That line of thinking doesn't even make sense. It would be like the plants in our gardens telling us they prefer this brand of shovel or this brand of watering can. God is the only one who can bring growth. And as part of his design and for for the good of the church, he brings that growth through different types of leaders with different gifts, with different personalities. And so when you and I set these different leaders, different gifts, different personalities over and against one another and divide over that, that's us reverting to merely human wisdom. That's us dividing the church. Now, thank God, in the last 2,000 years, we've grown out of this completely. We've, We've grown very sadly, very little 
in this in the past 2,000 years. So where does this show up today? Where do we see this in our, in our day? Well, for one, it happens denominationally. Um, we're not maybe likely to hear someone say, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos in the 21st century. We are or may well be likely to hear people say, I follow John Wesley. I follow Martin Luther. I follow John Calvin. Or I'm above all of that following people. I'm non-denominational. And then rather than, that's one thing in and of itself. There's big issues that some of these groups have divided over. They're worth considering, not worth just throwing out. But beyond that, rather than considering the beliefs of a person or a leader or a member of a certain church based on their own merits, based on what they actually are saying and and putting forward, we'll categorically write off a group of people because they're a fill-in-the-blank, because they're a Methodist, because they're a Calvinist, because they're a whatever. Beyond denominations, it happens with our favorite Christian authors and our favorite Christian speakers. So we might not say, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, but we might say, I follow Tim Keller. Uh, I follow John Piper. I follow Kay Arthur. I follow Matt Chandler, Beth Moore, Rick Warren, whoever that might be for you. And if you don't know who any of those people are, then I love you already. (laughs) Because I'm so inundated with Christian subculture, I need more friends like you. So let's meet and let's hang out. Uh, here's the thing. Very few people set out with this intent. You know, people who listen to Christian authors and Christian speakers, as they do it, very few people set out with this intent. But they can become some of the most divisive people in the church today. Why? Because rather than appreciating the wisdom and insights that these authors and speakers have and, and bring to the church, and then going back into their church humbly, graciously, patiently, bringing their advice, their counsel, their insights into their local church environment, what we do instead is we allow what we read or what we hear to fuel a discontentment and a cynicism in us. And we either walk away from our own local church entirely, or we walk back into our church with an an angst and an impatience that just doesn't help anyone. Two quick notes on this. Number one, what these men and women who speak and who write books, what they write and speak is vision. Okay, it is a picture of the ideal. It is not a picture of present reality. A couple of years ago, I had a chance to sit down with a fairly well-published Christian author. There were a couple of us sitting with him, and we asked him, well, how many people in your church actually are experiencing or actually living out the kind of stuff that you wrote in this one particular book of yours? And he sat there for a second, and he thought about it, and he said, probably at best 50%. So that means for at least half of the people in the church where this person who wrote this book is the primary leader, their experience, half the people in the church, their experience looks nothing like what he's written down in that book. Vision is necessary. Vision is beautiful. It fuels good desires and longings in us. But we can't confuse that with reality. Number two, there's a good chance that these people are your favorite teachers authors, speakers, whoever they may be, there's a good chance that they are your favorite teachers precisely because you don't have to live underneath their leadership. You don't actually have to interact with them and be led by them in real life. And I think what you would find in the vast majority of cases, if you go and spend time in the ministries, in the churches where these people are the leaders, and once that new church smell kind of wears off a little bit, you'll find frustration and cynicism in your heart there too. And then somebody else's book or somebody else's talk will start to sound like the answer, will start to sound very appealing. 
So what we're meant to do and what I would call us to do as a church, let's appreciate the men and the women that God employs to write and to speak and have big audiences because they really do, many of them bring such good things to our attention for us to chew on and and dwell on. But let's remember that it's God who brings the growth. And let's remember that this same God calls each of us to experience our own growth in the primary context of our own local church environment. Not in front of a screen, not in front of a book, not listening to someone with whom we never have to interact with personally. One last way uh, that the church divides itself today is what I'm going to call representative leadership. Representative leadership. And what I mean is that when a- within any given local church, if you have a person in leadership who is quote-unquote your guy, your, your person in leadership, your representative, that situation is ripe with division. If you find yourself thinking, like, I wouldn't be at this church, I wouldn't be part of this ministry if that person wasn't in that leadership role that they are in, that's ripe with division. And I'll tell you how my perspective on this has changed over the last decade. Um, When I was on staff at a church in Kansas City, every now and then someone would come to me and communicate something like that to me. They would say, I'm so glad you're here. You're the reason that I'm at this church. I actually wouldn't be here at all if you if you weren't in the role that you are in. And because I was younger, because I hadn't been adequately humbled, I ate that up. I ate that up. But can we just call that what that is? That's not a compliment. That's flattery. That's flattery, and it's divisive because at the end of the day, it means you don't really trust the leadership that's there in that church beyond your one representative that's there. So as someone who has now experienced this from multiple vantage points— If you ever find yourself starting to think this way, or if you already think this way about your church, about this church, I would call you to combat that. To don't don't just sit and and indulge that, but pursue the hard conversations that you need to have to, to grow in your trust for the overall leadership of a church, not just your one representative. And for those of you who might someday or maybe even today find yourself in a position of leadership in the church, if someone attempts to make you their representative leader, Love them enough to not let them do that. Love them enough to, and love the church enough to not let them do that. See through the flattery to the root of division that's there and serve that person well and serve the church well by helping them see it too. Second, let's talk about how leaders divide the church. How do leaders divide the church? As we've seen already in, in Paul's words, you don't have to be a leader to create division in the church. But definitely, leaders have a disproportionate opportunity to either unite or divide the church. So in verses 9 through 15, Paul specifically addresses the leaders of a church. And as he does, he changes metaphors. He's been using an agricultural metaphor to talk about the church at large. He switches now to an architectural metaphor, and he talks to those specifically who build the church. Two ways he highlights that leaders can divide the church. Building on the wrong foundation— or building with perishable materials. The church really only has one foundation. That's what Paul's saying here, and it's Jesus Christ. Uh, But that doesn't stop leaders in the church from attempting to build on other kinds of foundations. Most often, they try to substitute themselves as the counterfeit foundation. And so it's not really about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's about a leader's charisma, or it's about their brilliance, or it's about their ability to gather a group of people around themselves. 
And this is really the perfect recipe for disaster, both in Corinth and for us today. Using merely human wisdom, people will elevate these characteristics and qualities and these kinds of leaders, people that are charismatic, people that have these kinds of gifts. They'll elevate that. And then leaders, flawed and sinful human beings that they are, they rely upon those very things as a counterfeit foundation. So these sin patterns then play off of each other, and it builds and it escalates and it destroys the church. Every time a leader implodes, every time a leader of the church implodes, Somewhere in the mix is a church who elevated the wrong things in their leaders. And every time that a church implodes, somewhere in the mix are leaders who have built the foundation on the wrong thing. This is dangerous. And it's dangerous because sin is really deceitful. And so to speak to this personally, as many times as I and others examined uh, my motives and the motives of other people who helped plant this church. As many times as we examined our motives for planting, as many times as I and others perceived that that the motives that I had for planting this church were good, they were about the glory of God, they were about the good of others, sin still creeps its way into that. And I'll illustrate it like this. The foundation of every local church is more like cinder blocks than it is like poured concrete. It's more like cinder blocks than it is like poured concrete. And here's what I mean. If the initial and primary motive for for starting or establishing a local church is about Jesus, then it's tempting to think that we poured this unadulterated, uncorrupted foundation of like 100% pure Jesus. But realistically, it's more like a cinder block foundation, right? A lot of the cinder blocks in that foundation, they are about Jesus. But my sinful ambition snuck a few blocks in. And my sinful desire for respect or recognition of some kind snuck a few blocks in. And the other people that helped be part of getting a new church started, they had some sin that snuck some blocks in to that. And so rather than sit back and assume that the foundation is on Christ and so we're good to go, I need, we need the Holy Spirit to serve as this perpetual foundation inspector to see which of those cinder blocks really are truly about Jesus and which ones are actually about me. And to then, through this ongoing transformative work of my heart, the hearts of other people who lead, chisel out those corrupted cinder blocks and replace them with the only true foundation, which is Christ. Now, what's more, even on the foundation of Jesus, leaders can create division in the church by using what Paul calls perishable building materials. What might that look like in our day? New Testament scholar named uh, Gordon Fee summed it up well when he said this. He said, It is unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system predicated on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. But at the final judgment, all such building will be shown for what it is, something merely human, with no character of Christ or his gospel in it. So it's not just about founding the church on Jesus. Leaders of the church have to build Jesus' church in Jesus' way. Meaning that uh, as much common grace as there is and as there might be in philosophy and in management or other kinds of fields, if we draw people away from repentance and faith, if we make people 
cause-focused more than they are Christ-focused. If we entertain people, rather than calling them to count the cost and take up their cross and come after Jesus, that will one day be revealed to be cheap and perishable work. Now, as a pastor, uh, as an elder in Jesus' church, Paul's words to leaders here are weighty to me, but they at the same time are incredibly envisioning. Because on the flip side of this, the hard work of building Jesus' church in Jesus' way, with, of building with materials that pass through this fire, means that what we're doing here in the church has the potential to be the kind of work that lasts forever. Labor that glorifies God, labor that advances the gospel, passes through God's testing fire and is incorporated into his cosmic, eternal work of making all things new. And I'll tell you this, in the days that my eyes are clear enough to see it, the fact that you and I can use our lives for something that significant that gets caught up into the cosmic and eternal scope of God making all things new, that stirs the deepest kind of passion in my heart. On a practical note, on a timely note for us as a church, let me just take a second in light of this to put uh, our new church facility in the proper context. By this time next week, I hope to be able to, I expect to be able to share with you that we've signed a lease on a new church home. But it's critical that we go into this all thinking about this the same way and on the same page. A more permanent church home or permanent church facility is not the solution or the silver bullet for us to become the kind of church that Jesus is calling us to be. It is, and we believe it is, and it definitely can be a great tool, a great aid in us becoming that. But it is not in itself the answer to anything. And if we look to it as the answer, we will be building Liberty Church with perishable materials that will not withstand this refining and testing fire of God. If, however, this facility, this church home, furthers the work of the gospel in us and furthers the work of the gospel through us, if this church home is a place where God truly is glorified and people are served well, if it furthers the imperishable work of the kingdom of God, then it's completely and totally worth it. And so I just would invite you, as people who have a a vested interest in this, pray with us toward those ends and labor with us toward those ends, that us moving into a new church home would be part of us doing the kind of imperishable work, laboring with the kind of imperishable materials that we're called to labor with. Okay, we've talked a lot about division, how the church divides itself, how leaders divide the church. But that's not where Paul ends this text. I'm grateful for that. Uh, And so lastly, let's consider the death of division. How do you and I actively combat the division, the rivalry, the factionalism that each of us is inclined to? Paul's answer to this, which bears just as much truth today as it did then, is by remembering whose we are and by remembering what is already ours. By remembering whose we are and remembering what is already ours. So these divisions come when the pride of worldly wisdom deceives us and draws us away from the wisdom of God. Among the people of the church, there's pride to think that you and I can dictate to to God the means by which he will bring our growth. There's pride in thinking that if I hitch my wagon to the right leader, the right author, the right speaker, 
I can just rely on that. But Paul says, friends, you don't understand. Everything is already yours in Christ. And it turns this whole paradigm on its head. Paul, Apollos, Peter, you don't belong to them. They belong to you because they are servants of God. And in Christ, everything that belongs to God already belongs to you. The world is yours because Christ has overcome the world. Life and death are yours because Christ has overcome the grave. And the present and the future are yours because you are secure not only now but forever because of the finished work of Christ. So there's no room left for jealousy and strife and factions because you already have everything. Among leaders in the church, there's pride to think that, that we can build on a better foundation or with better materials than Jesus himself. And Paul says, fellow workers, remember who you are. You are servants gifted by God who God uses to bring growth. But that is all through the grace that God has given you. That is nothing on your own. That is all through the grace God's given you. It's built on the foundation of Jesus. It's built with imperishable materials that Jesus has chosen. So you might be an incredible means of growth in other people's lives, but the source of that growth is only and always God. And what that means for leaders in the church is that we can be free from proving anything. Everything is already ours in Christ, so we don't have to set ourselves apart from the pack in some way. We don't have to compete with and outperform other leaders of other churches. There's nothing left for us to prove. There's nothing left for us to gain. To everyone, the church and its leaders, Paul's plea comes in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So may we hear that from Paul today as clearly as the Corinthians would have heard it 2,000 years ago. Remember who you are. Remember what the church is. Builders, stop treating it as though it is yours to build however you want to. Men and women of the church, stop treating this as though it's a, like a cult of celebrity where you follow the, the speaker or leader that you like best. Because the church is not merely a human institution. It's not merely a human organization. The church is the set-apart people of God for whom Christ died and in whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's who we are. That's who we are. And this is the, the beautiful mess that is the church. Right? The, the beautiful people of God who nonetheless, because of sin, we make a mess of things through our jealousy and through our strife and through our factions. And so what we need, what the church in our day so desperately needs, is the mirror of passages like this, the mirror of God's word held up before us that we might see with clarity and really remember who we are. So church, be encouraged with this. By faith, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that means that the world and life and death and the present and the future, all of that is already yours in Christ. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. So together, may we grow in unity, may we combat division, and may we build on the only real foundation of Jesus Christ, remembering that we belong to him, and in him everything is ours. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, rescue us 
from the jealousy, strife, and factionalism that we have in our hearts and that we bring into our perspective of the church. Rescue us from confusing the means of growth and appreciating that means as people whom you have gifted and blessed and forgetting that the source of that is only you. Rescue us, particularly those of us who serve as leaders in your church, from building on the wrong foundation, from building with perishable materials that will one day be revealed to be as such. We desperately need you to be the foundation, to be the source of growth in all of us. And we desperately need you to bring clear clarity to our sight that we might remember who we are as your church and step into the call that you have put before us. There's such opportunity for us in this, not only in our day, but, but in this eternal work that you're doing. Help us to see that and be, be caught up into it, be envisioned by the work that you have done in us and are doing through us. And as we come to this table, may it be for us each and every week a reminder that the source of our growth is only and always you. It is your body and your blood that has rescued us, that has made peace for us with God, has made peace for us with one another, and allows us to be those who build the church on you. Pray this in your name. Amen.